The U.S. Border Patrol apprehended nearly 100,000 migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border in February. And the pace at which new migrants are arriving now is showing no signs of slowing down. So why are Democrats rushing to stem the tide? Here's a hint. They don't want to. I'll explain up next. Friends, it's time to hold the line. Do you have to say quite clearly, don't come? Yes, I can say quite clearly, don't come. And what we're in the process of getting set up, don't leave your town or city or community. Welcome to Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. Really what the Democrats mean is don't come yet, or at least don't come in these numbers quite yet. Let us prepare the ground for you. Let us get things ready so that when you arrive, it'll be a seamless transition from being a foreign national who has no legal right to be in the United States when you cross over the border illegally to entry into the U.S. And then hopefully you'll show up maybe at some point in a few years at a court hearing. But let's be honest, there'll probably be amnesty before that, so don't worry about it. That's what the Democrats are actually saying. You see, Republicans, conservatives view border security as preventing people from illegal entry, from prohibited access in the United States. Democrats view the border crisis as our facilities are overflowing because we've enticed so many people to come here. Let's slow it down and have a more orderly illegal immigration surge. It's a major fundamental difference that everyone needs to understand that right now. The immigrants who are coming across the border are doing so because of what they were told by this Biden administration. In fact, what Biden's been promising for a long time. That much is obvious. Here he is. Here's Joe Biden back in September of 2019. What I would do as president is several more things because things have changed. I would, in fact, make sure that there is, we immediately surge to the border. All those people are seeking asylum. They deserve to be heard. That's who we are. We're a nation that says if you want to flee and you're fleeing oppression, you should come. You know, they could set up asylum courts right on the border to hear them right away. And they also could have a remain in Mexico policy or a third country safe agreement, but that would be a means of stopping the flow of illegal immigrants. And the truth is they don't want to do that. And that's what you have to understand. They don't have an interest in actually doing that. They just want to make sure that the flow does not look disorderly. They want to make sure that as we go forward here, there's not that much video footage of hundreds of people at a time just walking across the border which by the way is still against the law and then waving down border patrol and saying here i am i have a credible fear of violence in my country i want asylum and that's it and then they get processed and then they're released often at a nearby bus stop or just dropped off somewhere and they're told you know you better show up for court we don't know when the date is the court's backlogged by the way it was backlogged hundreds of thousands of cases the last time there was a surge it's going to be backlogged again. But that's the whole point, don't you see? The overwhelming of the system, it means that they can't actually be processed, which means that everybody who shows up gets to stay or close to it. People will roll the dice. If you have an 80% chance of showing up at the border and getting to stay in America forever, if you get to flee, not just Central American countries, the so-called Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, but any country from anywhere around the world where you'd rather be in the United States, if you have, let's say, an 80 or 90% chance, which is probably not even the actual rate. It's higher than that. But if you had an 80 or 90% chance of being able to stay in the United States just by walking across the border, would you do it? 
This is the problem. It's the magnet. It's the enticement, the inducement to break U.S. immigration law. And Democrats are fine with it because as far as they're concerned, these are new voters for them. In fact, Chuck Schumer is already saying we need to integrate. Now, be very careful with this. We're not talking about legal immigrants here. I'm talking to you about illegal immigrants crossing our southern border in violation of existing federal law and then intentionally not showing up for their asylum hearings because they won't qualify. Here's what Chuck Schumer says about them. My strongest desire is to pass comprehensive immigration reform. I've felt that way since 2013 when the House blocked it. And we'll do everything we can to explore that area. Um, the House hasn't sent us the comprehensive bill yet. Uh, they're in the process of sending us other legislation. We want to get do, do as much as we can to uh, make immigrants welcome in America, to make sure that America uh, integrates Im immigrants into our system of government, and we'll keep fighting to get as bold and strong a bill as we can. Bold and strong a bill. What do you think is going to be most bold in the bill? I'm pretty sure it's going to be amnesty with a capital A. Millions and millions of people who came here illegally being rewarded for it. They'll start by talking about DACA, but then DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, will turn into DAPA, Deferred Action for the Parents of Arrivals, which will turn into another version of DACA, Deferred Action for the Cousins of Arrivals, and you'll all of a sudden get to millions and millions of people that Democrats reward for breaking our immigration laws and then turn into voters who, of course, will reward the Democrat Party in this process. That's really what this is about, politics. Politics, and also at some level, safety, national security, U.S. sovereignty. There's been some dispute as to whether or not what was said recently by Republican congressmen who were down on the border was true. There, there were claims that some people on the terror watch list had been caught at the border. Axios says four people on the terror watch, watch list have actually been arrested at the U.S.-Mexico border. So just want to say there are a lot of issues coming together here, but fundamentally the problem that we have with the Democrat approach to all this is that they don't see it as a problem. They just see it as something to be managed, not to be stopped. Illegal immigration benefits them. They want to control it. They don't want to end it. This is a fundamental difference and it's something we have to come to grips with and we have to oppose before that mass amnesty comes down and changes this country forever. The Republican Party effectively gets turned into a permanent minority political party. Have you ever wanted to invest in real estate, but you didn't have the time to do it on your own? I know exactly what that feels like, because until about a year ago, that was me. I love the idea of real estate investment in theory, but I didn't know how to stay committed to everything I've got going on while getting started in real estate investing and not making some big rookie mistakes. Like you, I'm really busy, so how was I ever gonna get started? Well, then I met my friends at Done For You Real Estate. They took all of the guesswork out of it for me. They found me an awesome property. They rented it out for me right away. They managed the tenant for me, and now I get a check every month like clockwork. Don't wait another second to see if my buddies at Done For You Real Estate can do for you what they did for me. Visit doneforyoubuck.com to see how it works. That's right, doneforyoubuck.com to begin your real estate investment journey today. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said there is no crisis at the border, but now the Biden administration is asking for help to deal with the surge. In an email obtained by Fox News, Secretary Mayorkas told DHS staff that he's activated the volunteer force to support Customs and Border Protection because Overwhelming numbers of migrants are seeking access to the country along the southwest border. Overwhelming. 
This comes as new reports show that there are more than 3,200 uh, 3, unaccompanied migrant children now in custody, a number that has tripled in just the past couple of weeks. Of those children, more than 1,360 have been detained in jail-like facilities beyond the 72 hours permitted by law. Joining me now to discuss this and much more is the Republican Senator from Texas, Ted Cruz. Senator Cruz, good to see you, sir. Bob, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. First, the border seems to be in crisis by any reasonable definition. What do you see going on and what has caused this? Well, I got to say, the facts you just reported on, they can't possibly be true because if you turn on the mainstream media, nobody's reporting on them. We, we, we spent four years of the Trump presidency with the media lighting their hair on fire, screaming about kids in cages. Well, as, as you and I both knew and pointed out at the time, those cages were built by Barack Obama. And, and right now today, we're seeing an incredible surge of unaccompanied children coming off across the border. And there's a reason for it. There is a cause and effect, which is Barack Obama and now Joe Biden promise amnesty. They have told people, if you come here as kids, you get to stay. You know, during the Obama administration, they asked all the unaccompanied kids who were coming, why are you coming? And the answer that they told DHS is because we get a permiso. In other words, we get here and we're allowed to stay. And the problem is you've got little boys and little girls who are being handed over to human traffickers, to violent cartels. These little kids are being physically assaulted, sexually assaulted. It is grotesque, it is inhuman, and it is getting worse under Joe Biden because his policies serve as a magnet to putting those kids in the place of abuse. If you want to be humane, if you wanna be compassionate, then you secure the borders and you prevent kids from ever being put in the custody of human traffickers. Do you think that this is leading toward a further Democrat push for actual amnesty? And, and is that something that could get through the Senate if perhaps they decide that they're finally, the Democrats are finally willing to eliminate the filibuster? I Undoubtedly, that is where they're going. Joe Biden has already put forth an immigration plan that is the most radical immigration plan that has ever been put forth by an American president. Joe Biden has pro proposed American citizenship for everybody. Everyone here illegally, ali ali oxen free, everyone becomes a citizen. The rule of law doesn't matter. Joe Biden has directed DHS to stop enforcing the border. They've returned to catch and release. So if you're caught, you just get released. That's why we're seeing this surge of illegal immigration because they know the Biden administration is not gonna enforce the law. And I'll tell you one of the more stunning things, you've got some video up there right now of, of Biden signing executive orders. One of the more stunning orders he had is, is to say and to propose that anyone who was deported in the last four years should be able to come back. Now that includes murderers, that includes rapists, that includes child molesters, that includes drunk drivers who have killed people on American roads. They are so radical that even violent criminals, if they were deported by the Trump administration, apparently the Biden administration wants them back here. That doesn't make any sense. And, and it's not consistent with what the vast majority of Americans believe. While the border crisis continues to unfold, Senator, we know that we have this $1.9 trillion spending bill, to call it a COVID relief bill, seems to give it more credit perhaps than it's due, or at least gives it the wrong focus. Here's what Jen Psaki said about some of the intent of the bill. The president is taking nothing for granted. Uh, I will note that um, the plan uh, that the Senate uh, passed this weekend puts us one huge step closer to passing one of the most consequential and most progressive pieces of legislation in American history. 
most progressive pieces of legislation in history. That doesn't sound like the moderate centrist, you could trust good old blue collar Joe that we were promised, Senator. No, that th- there's a reason Bernie Sanders and AOC are, are celebrating and, and Jen Psaki there a- actually appears to have accidentally spoken the truth. Um, you know, if you look at this bill, there, there are a couple of things to say about it. Number one, it would have been very simple for the Biden administration to pass bipartisan legislation focused on COVID relief. Last year, Congress came together and passed bipartisan legislation on COVID relief five times. Five times you saw Republicans and Democrats work together. Republicans were more than ready to roll up our sleeves and say, let's focus on vaccines, on distributing the vaccines, on supporting health care, on getting kids back to school, on providing relief for families that are hurting or helping small businesses open their doors. All of those could have passed with massive bipartisan majorities. The Biden administration decided it didn't want to do any of that. Instead, it handed the pen over, it handed the agenda over to the radical left, to the Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and AOC. And as Jen Psaki said, this is the most pro- uh, progressive bill by which she means left-wing socialist knuckleheaded bill that has that has passed in, in decades. And, you, you know, I, I do a podcast every week called Verdict with Ted Cruz. And the last podcast... What I talked about is if you wanted to sum up the Biden administration, the first six weeks of the Biden administration in three words, the three words would be boring, but radical. And and by that, I mean, I think Joe Biden has made a political decision to be incredibly boring, that after four years of Donald Trump dominating the headlines, every tweet dominating the headlines, I think the Biden administration decided People were tired of that, and so let's just have good old Uncle Joe be boring and not make news. And he's managed to do that. Uh, you know, you think about there are not many days in, in the last six weeks where you've woken up and said, what did Joe Biden say today? Because most days he doesn't answer questions from reporters, he doesn't say much of anything. But that boring is a mask, it's a facade for an incredibly radical agenda. And, and Buck, I'll tell you three amendments that we voted on uh, in, in the, in the all-night voting session we had. Number one, an amendment that, that I co-sponsored that said these, these $1,400 stimulus checks shouldn't go to prisoners, shouldn't go to violent criminals, murderers and rapists and child molesters currently in prison. Every single Democrat voted no. So this money is going to murderers currently in prison. Secondly, an amendment I introduced that said we shouldn't be sending these $1,400 taxpayer checks to illegal aliens, the 12 million illegal aliens in the United States. Again, every single Democrat voted no. And a third amendment that I introduced provided that we need to open the schools. And it said the money that's being sent, the billions of dollars that are being sent to schools, the schools don't get the new money unless they actually open up and teach our kids. And if they don't open up, the parents and kids get scholarships up to $10,000 a student so that kids who haven't been being educated for a year can actually be educated. Every single Democrat voted no. This is a radical partisan agenda, and and we're going to see a lot more of it from the Biden administration. Speaking of radical partisan agenda, Senator, before we let you go, Kristen Clark is a nominee to be Associate Attorney General for Civil Rights in this Department of Justice. And you've been trying to get the word out about some of her troubling past positions. For one thing, she was a big believer in Jussie Smollett's hoax and thought that that was a a major issue that we should all be paying big attention to. You tweeted out, the Democratic Party so radicalized that Joe Biden has nominated Kristen Clark to be Assistant Attorney General in the Civil Rights Division. Not only did she celebrate a convicted cop killer, 
She has troubling ties to the anti-Semitic nation of Islam. Story that's not getting enough attention yet, Senator. I want to try to change that, and you can help us by telling us what do we need to know about this nominee to a very important role in the DOJ under this Biden administration. Well, you look at her record, and, and, and it is a radical record. And by the way, there's a pattern, uh, uh, not only this nominee, but Vanita Gupta, who used to be the head of civil rights under the Obama administration and was just nominated for the number three position at the Department of Justice, just had her confirmation hearing today. In both instances, these individuals have had long careers, not as mainstream lawyers, not as demonstrating fidelity to law, but, it, but as radical left-wing activists. With respect to Ms. Clark, uh, she has vigorously defended a, a convicted and an admitted cop killer who murdered a police officer. Not only that, she organized a rally in support of the cop killer where she invited as a speaker a, a, a noted anti-Semite from the nation of Islam to speak in support of the cop killer. And this is who Joe Biden says should lead the civil rights division of the U.S. Department of Justice, someone who sides with cop killers over police officers, someone who is willing to celebrate and promote anti-Semitic hateful, hateful attacks. I, I, I think that is a very poor decision for a Department of Justice that's supposed to be fair and impartial and committed to the rule of law. Senator, you're going to have your hands full opposing the radical agenda. We appreciate you holding the line, though, sir. Thanks for joining us. You never thought COVID-19 could cost you your home, right? Well, it just might. Here's why. Cybercrime is up about 75% overall during the pandemic, and by far the most serious cybercrime when it comes to your home is home title theft. That's right. Cybercriminals, foreign and domestic, are now after our homes, and it's easier than you'd think. The title documents to our homes are online now. The thief finds your home's title, forges your signature on a quitclaim deed stating you sold your home to him. Then he takes out loans on your home and leaves you in debt. You won't know about this usually until late payment or eviction notices arrive. Insurance doesn't cover you, and neither do common identity theft programs. That's why I protect my home with Home Title Lock. The instant Home Title Lock detects someone tampering with my home's title, they help shut it down. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim. Then use code RADIO to receive 30 free days of protection. That's code radio at hometitlelock.com. Again, code radio at hometitlelock.com. Tense moment outside of Chase Bank in Portland, Oregon, as a security guard is forced to draw down on a violent group of anti-police rioters. Yet plywood and chain link fencing once again becoming a common sight on the streets of several major cities in the Pacific Northwest. Last week, rioters set fire to an occupied federal courthouse in downtown Portland. Thankfully, the flames were extinguished without any injuries. Meanwhile, the city's mayor, Ted Wheeler, is struggling to control not only the riots, but a surge in violent crime across Portland. Wheeler recently announced he would seek $2 million of funding for police and other agencies. The request is an about-face for the city, which last year voted to cut nearly $16 million from the law enforcement budget. So is the city of Portland reaping what it has sown? Joining me now is journalist Andy No. He's the author of Unmasked, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. Andy, good to see you. Thank you for having me on. 
There's been very little national media coverage, no surprise, of the current riots going on in Portland and Seattle. When did they get going, Andy? What, what kicked this off? They've been going since George Floyd died last year. Uh, it's just that the media, the national legacy media, only paid attention when they could use it to uh, blame on Trump, as he did in July last year. And uh, as the riots continued on and uh, Trump went out of office and the riots still continue, they don't focus on that anymore. So in Portland now, we've had four straight days of protests, most of which have turned to riots. Uh, that footage that you showed of the people trying to break inside the Chase Bank, that happened last Thursday. And then the following night, uh, rioters um, damaged severely the exterior of the federal courthouse. This is the same one that they, for a month last year, day in and day out, tried to set on fire to burn, burn it down. And uh, the sad thing is they went to attack this facility as soon as officials removed the protective barriers that were up for more than eight months. And uh, as of today, the fencing has now gone back up. Riders in Portland are continuing to target that federal courthouse, Andy. We see that they tried to set it on fire from what we understand. What, what is the significance of this courthouse in, in downtown Portland? It seems that they keep targeting this. They target it because they hate America and they view the, they don't recognize the rule of law. And so courthouses, police stations, anything that has to do with um, criminal justice system, they view as targets and as fit to set on fire, to vandalize and to destroy. Um, this is on top of the routine damage that they do to businesses that are already have been struggling for a, almost a year now because of COVID-19 related restrictions and policies. So um, as I've said before, they're really trying to push cities like Portland and Seattle past the point of return so that recovery is impossible so that they can move in with in, in the power vacuums and create autonomous zones as they did in seattle last year as they did in december in portland uh, there's an ongoing autonomous zone right now in minneapolis so just just to understand this forever because i was going to ask you you know terrorists usually have something they want some list of demands i mean there is some pretty nihilistic terrorism out there, but generally they're trying to achieve some kind of goal, ideological or otherwise political goal. It sounds like you're telling me that Antifa really believes if they make Portland and Seattle quasi unlivable lawless hell holes, that the city of Portland, or at least big chunks of it, let's say, could be turned into an autonomous zone? Is that, is that really their plan? Yeah, it's in these autonomous zones that they organize, they recruit, they radicalize, they get funding. I mean, last year during the Chaz, as I write about in my book, I was there in that autonomous zone in Seattle for a week. It was allowed to go on for more than three weeks and hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in donations were being poured in and they were using this to buy right here and food and pay for their accommodation and all that. So it's just a breakdown of law and order in every way imaginable and, and you're having what um, some thinkers call anarcho-tyranny. It's like you have the worst tyrannical aspects of um, a totalitarian state without any pretense of basic law and orders. Is the, is the government response in Seattle and Portland similar to what we saw last summer when it was earlier on after the 
George Floyd riots, or have they stepped it up a little bit? I mean, have they learned from some of those earlier mistakes? Um, well, they're a bit more quiet now because they can't use it as uh, political fodder against the Trump administration. Um, and I think police, at least what I saw in one of the riots that occurred in Portland a couple of days ago, is that police uh, created a, a really fast perimeter around this black bloc militant group. And it, it created what is called a, a, a cattle them in and stopped them dead in their tracks. I don't know why this tactic wasn't done uh, six months ago, eight months ago, uh, when riots were happening every night. Um, but hopefully it's a good sign. Um, I mean, it's, it was demoralizing to see that rioters could pre-announce their intent for criminal activities weeks in advance and show up and no law enforcement would be there. Andy, you understand these groups. You obviously have written your book, Unmasked, about, about the ideology actions, just the details of, of what Antifa uh, and these radicals are, are up to, uh, is there some sense among them that under a Biden administration, this, isn't, this seems a little counterintuitive to the general public that, that they would, or, or are they really, uh, they're so dedicated to this idea of anarchism or whatever it is that it doesn't matter who the president is? I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, are there other radicals, are there other leftists who are saying, hey guys, we've got one of ours in the White House now, calm down a little bit, or does that not happen? It doesn't happen. I think that there's a misconception um, that Antifa Democrat voters, and I think that misconception comes because Democrats, mainstream Democrats, are uh, reluctant to condemn Antifa. So you would think that they're allied. In the eyes of the Antifa, they don't recognize any American political party, any American government. So the messaging that you see they carry since Biden's come into office is they say, we don't want Biden, we want revenge. So they're trying to literally, in their words, to abolish the United States. And that's a grand goal that won't like, you know, won't they won't achieve it. But at a much smaller level, you can see they're doing they're having a lot of success in destabilizing and making certain urban areas in America unlivable. Andy, what are your expectations? Is this going to just continue on? Is it is it going to get worse? It's going to get worse as the weather gets uh, warmer. Um, they slow down a little bit with some of the sub-freezing sub temperatures that happened in December and January. Uh, but with the sun out a bit more now in the Pacific Northwest, um, they're being a bit more emboldened with uh, organizing. I mean, the riots that happened on Saturday, for example, happened in three major cities, Portland, Seattle, and Los Angeles, all done by the Youth Liberation Front, an Antifa group who has Twitter account. So, you know, their organizing is being done on these big tech platforms. And these are the same platforms who have promised to clamp down on violent extremism, yet they allow this organizing to be done out in the open. Andy No, check out his book, Unmasked. Andy, stay safe. We need you, buddy. Talk to you soon. Well, given the, 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 the tremendous rise and surge of individuals coming to the border, wouldn't it be fair to call it a crisis? Because that's what your agents are calling it. Mr. Ranking Member, uh, I'm not spending any time on the language that we use. This administration has a border policy. Can you succinctly say what that policy is as it relates to the border? Congresswoman, the border is secure and the border is not open. The border is secure and the border is not open. Really? That was DHS Secretary Mayorkas earlier today, still refusing to call what's happening at our southern border a crisis. 
Well, our next guest strongly disagrees. Julio Rosas, senior writer for townhall.com. He just left the border town of McAllen, Texas. He joins us now to tell us what he saw over a whole week down there. Julio, let's start with this. Is this a crisis? Yes, Buck, it, it absolutely is a crisis. And it's it's that for a number of reasons. Number one is just the massive numbers of illegal immigrants crossing into the United States uh, in a 24-hour period. And that increase has been ongoing since around a, uh, April of last year. Uh, however, we've seen just a dramatic increase uh, since January. And obviously, one of the main factors uh, that has changed since January is uh, President Biden. And so uh, the, the issue is that we're seeing the effects of this administration's open border rhetoric and policies, because remember, during the campaign, he was saying no deportations for 100 days, he was going to end remain in Mexico, and he's followed through uh, on some of that. And so uh, Friday night, for example, in a span of only three hours, I saw uh, 263 illegal immigrants uh, crossing the Rio Grande and handing themselves over, over to Customs and Border, uh, to border Patrol. And that was only three hours, you know, and that in the span of about 10 hours, that number was about 700. And that was only one sector uh, for the entire border. So clearly th- this is uh, not slowing down. Are they are they mostly I mean, can you give us some sense? We're seeing some some photos that I know you took down at the border here. It looks like a, a mix. There are adult males. There are family units. There are children. I mean, I, I, is there some profile of who's, you know, the, the dominant profile of who's coming across, or is it a, a total mix of, of different uh, age uh, demographics and, and gender demographic, or your gender difference? So from, from what I've seen, it does seem to be comprised of uh, people claiming to be in family units. Uh, we do know that there is some trafficking with people claiming that they're their parents when they're not. Uh, but there's also unaccompanied minors, and uh, probably the youngest unaccompanied minor that I saw was she was eight years old, and she, uh, I believe, you saw she was an eight-year-old girl to... crossing alone at the border. She wasn't a group, but she wasn't. Uh, she didn't have her parent or any legal guardian with her, you know. So that that that's again, that's kind of the issue that we're seeing is that the that the this influx that we're seeing again being incentivized by the Biden administration. Uh, it's just uh, we're seeing cases where there's kids as young as eight. There was other 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 16-year-olds uh, who were there crossing and making this very dangerous journey uh, without their parents or any significant other in their fa- in their family. And they're in the, the hands of complete and total strangers. And so uh, that that's, again, the issue when we have uh, this incentivization going on because then the number of these uh, very, very at-risk groups uh, are increased. And obviously the, the cartels who do partake in human trafficking, they're making more money now than they were previously because not only they're making money on their narcotics that they're smuggling, but now they got uh, a bigger customer base that is willing to pay uh, them to come into the country because they feel that their investment is going to have a much better chance at being able to stay in the United States as opposed to being deported right away. Did, were you able to get some sense of, of what uh, of the people who are crossing, and, and when you're talking about just walking across the border is illegal. I think people need to remember that, that, that it's not allowed to just walk from Mexico to the United States. You have to go at a port of entry. People are walking across the border. What percentage of the people that are doing this are released in the American interior after processing? Do we have some sense of that? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we know that they're not deporting uh, family units and uh, unaccompanied minors in as numbers as they did uh, previously under the uh, Trump administration. Now, 
in terms of numbers, it is a little bit hard to ascertain just because, and this is a, a broader issue, uh, the Biden administration it has really clamped down on the transparency, whether it's the, the numbers or the uh, facilities that the uh, unaccompanied minors are in, and that's because they don't want the bad imagery since these facilities are, are over, way overcrowded, they're way over capacity, and that's just because they can't process them fast enough because they're, they, just, they just keep coming every single day. What happens so we is do in know- the processing, Julio? Because we keep getting told that the, pro- you know, how long are people being, how long is a family unit on average being detained for processing before they're released in the U.S.? So it, it depends on where they're apprehended. Uh, for example, in McAllen, uh, the, the Border Patrol has set up a processing site kind of along the trail on this road that they typically use to turn themselves in. And that, that is uh, the hope is to get them out of the system uh, as quickly as they can, whether they're going to be deported or whether they're going to be released in the United States. Uh, and that's one of the things that has to that was one of the new things that has been implemented just because they have to try to absorb uh, all these numbers. So uh, in Brownsville, uh, they're being uh, dropped off at the bus station, and then there's COVID testing that is done at that bus station by the city. Uh, uh, unfortunately, the city doesn't have the authority to hold them. And even if they did, there would be no place to put them because, again, there's just no room. And so even if they test positive, they're still able to go onto buses and go to other places uh, in the country. And and you have already sort you've already heard and already started to see that the Biden administration is is I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's not easy for you to get somebody from the press office at Border Patrol or ICE to sit down and have a long conversation with you about what's going on. Is that fair? Yeah, a- absolutely. And uh, to, to give an example, really, the only people within the Border Patrol community that is actually speaking to the press are the union members. And that's because they're in their contracts that, are, that they're allowed to do so. Uh, but uh, and, and the reason why is just because uh, the official channels, the typical channels that you would normally go for comment, it's been met with silence. And that's something that I experienced personally. Uh, NBC News just put out a report saying that uh, Border Patrol uh, sectors uh, have been told to not do ride-alongs. I did put in a request for a ride-along in the Rio Grande Valley. I've yet to hear back uh, from, from them on that. And so th- this is, they, they know, they know that this is, uh, outside of the crisis, they know it would be bad optics if people would really have a good unfiltered look at to what's happening. And so this is just, again, the effects of what we're seeing uh, when we have an administration that incentive, that does incentivize through policy uh, this massive increase of human trafficking. I'm assuming, Julio, that uh, this is expected to continue on for some time and, and probably get a little worse. Yes, and and that's the most concerning part because the the projections that we've that were initially made in January we've already surpassed those projections in March, and this is not even the peak season of when tip, people typically cross. They do like to cross in the springtime because it's not as hot uh, as it is during the summer. So uh, spring is right around the corner, and so uh, I would be curious to see what the numbers are looking ahead in March, uh, March and May, and, and then into June. But it does look like it's going to uh, get worse unless things change from the administration, but it looks like they're pretty uh, well entrenched in in continuing down this path. Julio, great work as always, man. Stay safe and thanks for joining us. We're living in very uncertain times and being prepared for the unknown is more important than ever. I'm sure you've noticed this world we're living in is anything but predictable. The government's passing massive spending bills. The Federal Reserve is printing trillions of dollars in fiat currency, and many experts are predicting inflation could run rampant in the coming months. That could spell disaster for the dollars in your bank account. 
we could all benefit from something a little more reliable right about now. Well, what could be more reliable than real gold and silver? I'm talking about real gold and silver you can actually hold right in your hands. Call the Oxford Gold Group now. Learn how easy it is to get real gold and silver sent securely directly to your home or how you can have real gold and silver placed in your IRA or 401k. Just call the Oxford Gold Group at 833-600-GOLD and ask for your free guide on owning gold and silver. Again, call the Oxford Gold Group right now at 833-600-GOLD. The Oxford Gold Group is the only gold company I trust. Call them right now, 833-600-GOLD. One more time, that's 833-600-G-O-L-D. While the country is still battling the coronavirus pandemic, there's a different kind of virus that is spreading all over the place too. The wokeness cult in elite education is slowly poisoning our society, rotting not only our institutions, but the young, impressionable brains of the people that attend them. Barry Weiss, in a recent piece, The Miseducation of America's Elites, shines a terrifying light on this. She was formerly of the New York Times. She left because of wokeness, and in this piece, she gets into the wokeness culture that has run amok at elite schools, pointing out the sad reality that as a society, we're no longer close to the beginnings of a counter-movement. Joining me now to discuss, the director of the Discovery Institute Center on Wealth and Poverty. He does a lot of anti-wokeness work of his own. Chris Rufo. Chris, good to see you. It's great to be with you. There was a quote that I think really summed up a lot of this article, which is for everybody watching. It's a Barry Weiss piece in City Journal, where she goes into some of the most elite private schools in New York City and Los Angeles, and how not just the kids, the parents are now increasingly terrified at the level of brainwashing that's going on. There's a quote in this piece that to speak against this is to put all of your moral capital at risk. Feels like that kind of summarizes where we are in society against wokeness these days. Yeah, I mean, I think that's how people conceive of it, but I think there's also a, an error there because it's not moral capital. I think you can stand on moral grounds against this ideology uh, very solidly. It's really your social capital and your status that is at risk. Because it, within these elite institutions, if you question this ideology, uh, you're immediately dismissed with all sorts of epithets, of racist, a white supremacist, upholding the patriarchy, whatever it might be. Uh, and that's what terrifies elite Americans more than anything, is the loss of status. It seems amazing as well, and this is part of the article, I know you, you've covered this too in your work and research. We're talking about, in some cases here, 40, 50, even $60,000 a year private high school institutions who are having their, their, their students constantly go around uh, lecturing others now on privilege and the need to show contrition for white supremacy culture, a, a whole range of left-wing ideas. How, why, are, why are these institutions of privilege posing as social justice warriors against privilege? Well, I mean, the hypocrisy is clear, right? You have some of the most privileged people on the, on earth denouncing others for their privilege. Um, but I, I think what's happening is that this is the elite ideology. So it's not a surprise that it's being perpetuated in, in elite uh, primary and secondary school education systems. Uh, the question that I think conservatives need to wrestle with is uh, how do you push back against this within those elite institutions? Because whether we like it or not, uh, these are the high school kids that in 20 years are going to be running uh, companies and institutions and, and universities, uh, it's time to really tackle this problem now uh, and not just dismiss it as an elite fad. Well, it feels like we do need something of a, of a counter 
wokeness revolution, right, or a counter-revolution against wokeness, the, the far left in this country, far left ideology, has seized the commanding heights of some of the most powerful, influential, and wealthy institutions in the United States. Basically, all of Hollywood, all of elite academia, all of social media. I mean, you go down the list now, and it's, it's stunning what they've done. And it feels like on the right, or even, even actual centrists in this country, uh, aren't able to, or aren't willing to, or why is it, you know, why isn't there one elite high school, for example, that says, we believe in traditional values? I mean, can we start there? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that question. There might be. There's a lot of uh, high schools in the country, but I, I think that the right is really ceded cultural territory. They basically said, we're going to focus on economics, we're going to focus on trade, we're going to focus on national security. Uh, and they made the decision a generation or two ago to abandon the cultural sphere. Uh, I, I think that already is changing, though. I, I'm actually very optimistic. I think that if you look at social media, if you look at comedy, if you look at other bright spots within the culture, uh, people are starting to realize that this ideology is not only morally and politically wrong, but actually it's not fun, it's not forgiving, uh, it's not it's not enjoyable to be a part of that culture. So uh, I'm optimistic, and I know that people who are in the kind of Gen Z category, it's now become cool and popular and rebellious to fight against wokeness. Uh, so there's a lot of bright spots from where I'm sitting. Yeah, politically cor- political correctness, wokeness, this these different... Uh, ways of describing this kind of leftism is clearly a a vicious and really self-consuming ideology. One thing that we see are people who think that they're safe from it or think that they're on the right side of it very quickly get fed into the machinery the same way as other people because that's just the way it goes. Kind of reminds me a little bit of what happened in the Soviet Union in the earlier days. Uh, but I also wanted to ask you about how how far this can really go on campuses before people say this has just gotten completely crazy. There's a University of Dayton professor who says, uh, who, who's been very you know, public and vocal about how 90% of the country's schools have excessive whiteness, and he shared this out, that the University of Georgia, Sanford University, Mercer, Pepperdine, Southern Methodist, that these are the whitest law schools in the country. And then the professor recommends how to reduce excessive whiteness. I mean, just the notion that there's a term that's being used in academia openly of excess whiteness, uh, like, like it's excess weight, something that must be shed. This is concerning. Yeah, it's concerning, but not surprising. I think that if you look at this language, to eliminate excess whiteness applied to any other group uh, would be immediately denounced by everybody. But this is just another blip in the culture war, in our culture, in our kind of time and place. Uh, but I think this is kind of, it's, it's, it's termed in excessive terms, but this is really the ideology. This, this law school professor of this story said uh, that we should be eliminating standardized testing, eliminating competitive grading, eliminated, eliminating any objective measurement of student achievement, and simply a portion of positions in law schools and other institutions on the basis of race. Um, it's been going this way for a long time, and uh, this law school professor uh, just didn't have the tact uh, to not just say it, uh, the quiet part out loud. Yeah, and it seems increasingly like the woke left, Chris, is just making an argument rooted in, in power and not actually in ethics or, or morality, certainly not one in equal protection under the law. Like there's, there's now just essentially a treatment of everything in society as though it's a spoil system and should be doled out to people based upon identity category, whatever that may be. 
That's right. And I think that the real problem, though, is that that way of thinking, this idea that there's a static amount of resources and power and privilege that should be apportioned to different racial groups and some kind of formula, uh, ignores the idea of where does wealth come from? How is productivity generated? How are benefits and privileges and technology uh, created? And ultimately, they're going to kill the golden goose uh, because you can only redistribute and take and seize and and, uh, and push for so long before people uh, start to realize that we're actually doing damage to our economy, damage to our, our system of laws. Um, and unfortunately, that seems to be the direction we're heading. I know in some of the work you've done, you've shown the public the kind of wokeness training that's going on for employees of the government, municipal employees specifically. Uh, are you seeing a rise in that under the Biden administration? Essentially, is it now, you know, just open season, they, they want to get as much wokeness training out there in the federal government, state and local government as they possibly can, or is it staying pretty constant, pretty steady? Yeah, I mean, I've got sources in dozens of federal agencies, and the common theme that I'm hearing is that uh, diversity training and cult critical race theory training is back with a vengeance. Uh, they're doubling down on it. They're trying to make it part of all of their programs and decision making. So. I think under the Biden administration, it's safe to say that even at this early time, uh, critical race theory has jumped out of the HR department uh, and is now in the boardroom. Uh, actually, the cabinet and subcabinet level officials are being asked uh, to, to make these decisions, make political decisions, make administrative decisions according to the dictates of this new ideology. Chris, appreciate your work. Thanks for joining us.